We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Computer, this is Data. I'm an Android. I'm a basketball. I was processing all of the information. Processing. It's one of those idiots who believe in analytics. Rangers pick basketball. Analytics was crap. Does not compute. Just because you got good stats doesn't mean you're a good team. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Lakers Exceptionalism Podcast. My name is Tom Z. Joined as always by Tim, aka Cranger's McBasketball. And Tim, the Lakers got a big, if not very strange, win in Game 4 against the Memphis Grizzlies. Uh, how you feeling today? Got that big the Lakers and 5 energy out here on the West Coast. Oh yeah, it was, it was a fun one. Had a blast last night in the playback stream going through it. Wasn't easy, wasn't a blowout. Uh, it was tough throughout. The Lakers trailed a good bit, but going up 3-1, even if it was ugly, even if after a rewatch, I don't know if we should have won. Um, it's still huge. Like having an extra, you know, it, that's such a big, big outcome. And you talked about it on the stream last night, like being up 3-1 and just needing to win one of three games rather than tie series. It becomes a best of three with two of those three games in Memphis, completely different situations. So I'm feeling good. But I definitely see plenty that the Lakers can tweak here or there because Memphis is starting to figure things out. So they're kind of they kind of limped through that one and uh, just need one more. Hopefully can close the series out quickly and get some rest because 80s struggling a bit. He's fighting through that hip injury. Um, I know LeBron was really tired last night with these quick turnarounds. It'd be good to finish off a young team sooner rather than later. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, 
So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. No, it's definitely one of those really, really positive, you know, momentum building, hopefully, wins that teams can get and and get invigorated and uh, start to kind of play up to their potential because, you know, I didn't see these kinds of wins during the regular season. Obviously, pre-trade was a totally different team, but there's a kind of win that, you know, we're down seven and D'Angelo hits three threes in a row, right, after having a rough game. Even though on rewatch, Tim, I think he didn't play as well or as bad as I remember. He made some really terrible uh, fouls, like those, those you know, um, clear path fouls. The clear path, yeah. Just really dumb reach-ins. Um, Austin had one as well. There was some really, really dumb play there. But I thought he still really settled them in a couple moments that were really big and kept them in it with some mid-rangers. Well, we'll get into the Lakers offense in here in more detail, but just kind of broad strokes, you know, those three threes from D'Angelo came in such and in such a dramatic way because he fouls out immediately after. And it's like this like theatrical performance where he he fake dies on stage and like everyone applauds and he he dies a martyr instead of a, <laughs> a villain, you know. Yep. Yeah, he left on a high note. Uh, there's always the, you know, the character in the story that, you know, has to sacrifice themselves to save everybody else so that they can reach their eventual goal. And that was that was D'Lo <laughs> committing six fouls yesterday, but doing so after he hit, you know, some some pretty big shots. He had some nice floaters early in the third quarter to, you know, help keep L.A. in things. And then those three big threes. Uh, really kind of changed the the tone. So yeah, you're right. It was he, he kind of died for the Lakers since in a way, got out of there, and then and then they were able to push forward. So shout out D'Lo. Wasn't a perfect game, uh, but his shot was falling better than it had been recently, and and the Lakers really needed it. Yeah, just some more general, you know, broad stroke notes. Rui came back down to earth a little bit, uh, not quite having as many opportunities as. You know, when he was matched up on Jackson, he was clearly not shading off of him as, as much and helped get LeBron, you know, some big buckets there down the stretch. Um, but we had we saw Vando score 10 points in five minutes, you know, shooting five threes there in, in his first kind of stint, which is, you know, a reaction to how the Grizzlies, how far they were shading off of him, which is great. Um, uh, and then uh, obviously Austin, who had kind of an up and down game, who was pretty steady throughout with uh, seven points in the fourth quarter. Um, he had some bad fouls as well, but he, I thought, 
generally played well in the pick and roll, getting some double drag action. So Tim, let's, let's dive into the Lakers offense. Lots of double drag. This is my first takeaway. I saw it with Dennis, with Austin, with D'Lo, and I don't have the numbers, but it, rewatching it this afternoon, it was very, very successful for them. Yeah, I didn't pull the numbers this time yet. I'll I'll do that after the pod and, and tweet those out later. But I know last game it was quite successful for the team. And what was so interesting was that with those three players, you use it in three very different ways. But all of them were successful. Like with D'Lo, D'Lo and double drag, the threat there is the pull-up three. And that keeps Memphis more at the level of the screen. And that's going to open up the lob for AD. Or if he's tagged, then you've got shooters to spray out to. Or or, or Vando to spray out to. Um, with, with Reeves, he wants to get off those screens and then kind of get down. Not quite downhill, but get into the paint, get his guy on his back. And then draw some fouls, hit some mid-range shots. Uh, maybe throw a lob. And D'Lo has some of that in his game as well. With Dennis, when he's using the screens, it's it's not as effective because they're going under, they're dropping. He doesn't quite have that pull-up shot. And there were a couple times he could have taken it but didn't, and it was probably the right decision. Where he's most effective with the double drag is leveraging the fact that with those two screens, you also have two defenders pulled out of the paint up to the three-point line. And when he rejects, it's a foot race to the rim, and he sprinting forward is able to beat those bigs backpedaling or his man trying to flip his hips and recover pretty well. And and D'Lo was, or I'm sorry, Schroeder was able to get to the rim a couple times, score this game and last game. So yeah, three different guys using it three different ways, but each having success. And I, like you, noticed that they ran it a lot, and I was very happy to see that they did that. Yeah, it's great to be able to keep a defense on their toes, right? With like having to remember which guy and how to run, you know, and change kind of each coverage with, um, you know, sometimes Lakers don't set it up well. It's kind of they're running through the motions. It's too early in the shot clock. Maybe they're trying to get through to something else. So sometimes they'll just reverse the ball and try to attack the action on the weak side. You know, that's how well that kind of action has, you know, engaged the the Grizzlies defenders and kind of put them on that, you know, alert for that kind of play and what that action, you know, read should be. Sorry, I can't talk. Yeah, no, you're, you're totally right. And especially with how Memphis defends, they do a lot of stunting off of the next perimeter player over. And whenever the Lakers run double drag with the empty side, so there's there's nobody in the, we'll say they're starting at the right wing, there's nobody in the right corner, there are two screens, so the ball handle is driving towards the top of the key, trying to turn the corner. And then on the opposite side of the court, there's a guy in the corner and a guy at the wing. That guy at the wing, I need them to be a shooter. This has been where Rui's gotten a bunch of his threes because his man will stunt off of him towards the middle of the free throw line just to try to disrupt that drive. And then the Lakers have done a pretty good job of just kicking out to that guy and shooting or having that guy get a head start running, catching on a stampede cut, finishing at the rim, or set, you know setting some screening actions with those weak side guys. So if Memphis overhelps from the weak side, LA's punished it pretty well, which is really key because if you don't, you're just letting this team disrupt your strong side stuff constantly. And so just punishing them enough so that by the fourth quarter, by overtime, LeBron with his key drive to tie the game and center to overtime, with his key drive to kind of clinch it in overtime, each of those times there were guys that could have stunted but didn't really stunt all the way because they knew they had to recover. They knew LA has burned us enough on this that I can't 
sell out on this the way I can against some other teams because they've got you know non-shooters standing there and I don't have to respect them. So LA kept the defense honest just enough and it played key factors in some some critical late game plays that you know you, you don't really notice watching live. It's just celebrating, yelling, beating your chest about LeBron, finishing these drives. But it's those little things that add up over 48 minutes and over four games that build, you know, you're, you're telling the defense, you're conditioning them. If you do this, we're going to burn you. So then they don't do it anymore. And LA's done that just enough. And even like with Rui, like you mentioned, he's not getting as many threes. He was, he was one for four. His shooting's regressing a little. He's not as good of a three-point shooter as he showed the first three games. Uh, you know, I don't think it's right to expect him to continue shooting out of his mind. But he's getting fewer opportunities because they're needing to respect him more. And that's going to open up more of those drives and more of the middle range, mid range game. And we saw D'Lo and Reeves take advantage of that. So it's, it's nice to see that even when Memphis makes adjustments, the Lakers still have the right skill sets and approach to take whatever the defense is giving them. And I think that's, that bodes quite well for a 16 win run uh, as you continue to play other teams that'll throw you new challenges at you. Yeah. Um, a lot of kind of strange, like we talked about Vando earlier at the top. Um, what they adjusted with the second half was they had Vando come up and be the guy in the pick and roll action with D'Angelo Russell. And kind of along that line, they were really trying to involve John Morant a lot more, I thought, in the pick and roll, trying to involve him on defense and make him make decisions. And, you know, there was a possession where Troy Brown was matched up on him. And I I was thinking, oh, no, this is going to end badly. And Troy just dribbled through him. Like, he didn't really go around him. He just literally, like, kind of dribbled through him um, and did well not to get an offensive foul. But just Ja isn't there defensively. And he he gets lost in the same ways that D'Lo does when they do that, the help and recover, uh, when they switch him on to, you know, LeBron. he It's a scramble, right? He doesn't really scram out on the back end. He doesn't know where he's going. He's kind of in no man's land. And they, I thought they were able to attack that pretty well. Did you kind of see any, like, jaw uh, point of attack, you know, intention from the Lakers? Oh, yeah. Yeah. From the start all the way to the finish. They did it multiple times in overtime. They did it every quarter, really. And just bring his man up to the level, up to the ball. And if they switch, great, you've got a mismatch to attack. But Memphis hates switching him onto players. Even there were times where it like Jaw would be guarding, I don't know, Brown and Brown would come set a ball screen for D'Lo. And Memphis refused to switch Jaw onto D'Lo. It's like it's a guard on a guard. But because they were refusing to do that, Ellie was able to attack those those show and recovers with ghost screens, with short rolls. There were times where Ja would step out, get in the way of the ball handler, and then just bail. And then you know, just open open the door for the, the guard to drive through. And we saw that multiple times where Dila would just wait for him to leave and then drive and get downhill. Uh, it didn't always work, but it was immediately advantage creating. We saw LeBron operate sending jaw towards him and again the defense you know did not want to give up that matchup so there was a lot of smarter it's not just running inverted ball screens with lebron but getting the right defenders involved in the action so that you could target them in one way or another i thought was key and i I really liked that and to your point an adjustment in that third quarter was getting vando setting those ball screens jackson was on him and in the first quarter the first like 10 offensive plays of the game for the Lakers were like 
the whole game plan was Memphis just leave this guy alone. He scored 10 points. He had a put back. He had, I think, a cut. He had a couple threes. It was the, if I were Memphis coach, it would be so infuriating because it was like, this is exactly what we want to give up. We want this guy shooting four threes in the first quarter. We want this guy like the first we, seven. They points. were able to disrupt everything. The Lakers tried to run a wide pin down for AD. Memphis top locked it. Usually, how the Lakers counter that is throw a lob for AD. Can't do it because because Jaron Jackson Jr. is on at the block on the opposite side of the court of Vando standing in the corner. Like insane, insane leaving him alone. And they they, you know, and that completely stopped the play. Play after play after play, just leaving him alone. And the Lakers would run double drag and Memphis would be hedging it. And when they're hedging it, that means that the rollers got space and they would try to, you know, hit lots with that usually. But Memphis was tagging super hard off of Vando. And then the Lakers were stuck with, you know, what do we do from here? Um, in that third quarter, I love the adjustments. Once they And it was, you know, only certain times of the game you have the same lineup. So it wasn't quite, you know, we're going to adjust and use this a minute from now. It's we're going to adjust and use this the next time this lineup faces that lineup and we can create the same situation. We saw, as you said, Vando setting ball screens. And that just put Jackson in the action. And now he needs to play drop and you can attack from there. We saw Ram action screens for Vando so that, so like he was under the, in the dunker spot, standing under the Ram, we'll say. AD would set a down screen for Vando to then go set a ball screen just for the purpose of not letting Memphis hedge, forcing them into drop. And that created better looks for the Lakers. And then we also saw plays where rather than trying to hit the like long roll for AD on that double drag, they would hit the short roll to him. And then instead of Vando sticking in the corner, he would cut as Jackson went over to help and guard the short roll. And the Lakers got a dunk off of that. So we saw very comprehensively the Lakers saw what wasn't working early in the game, immediately fixed it, and went right at it to start that third quarter. So what was a weakness that, to be honest, they got away with it. Absolutely got away with it. In that first quarter, they were able to turn into a strength in the third. So I really liked that. Yeah, he scored the first seven points of the game for the Lakers. You know, I think it was 10-7 at one point, and it was seven Bando, zero Lakers. Um, so <laughs> it's <laughs> it's nice to see that they were able to kind of play good defense along that stretch because they gave up like a you know 6-0 run to start the game. So they settled in and uh started to get better looks and and the rest is history. But um they they got out to a big lead there and they're still having problems closing out quarters and halves. But uh, anyway, we'll get to the defense and, and that a little bit more later. But I think other offensive notes generally, uh, Lakers shot the ball really, really poorly. Uh, they were bailed out by the fact that the Grizzlies shot it even worse. But I think that's, you know, still cause for concern. We saw, I thought, you know, Troy Brown had a pretty good stretch there. Uh, the best stretch of the series, you know, and he actually got just under 22 minutes. So I think that, you know, Ham agrees. Um, but I still, what worries me, Tim, is still some of the offense in those lineups. You know where I'm going with LeBron at, at like the center with Rui. Um, is there anything they did in this last couple games or anything you've seen that make you feel better about that? They did run more double drag, I feel like, in those moments, but it still didn't feel like it was, uh, it was great. Yeah, it was still clunky. I was excited when watching the game with about 3.30 or so left in the first quarter, we saw Wendy Gabriel stand up and walk to the scores table. I was like, all right, 
They got it. He's not going to be in just for one minute. They're going to actually give him a couple minutes. And then they grabbed him and sat him right back down. And I was like, no. Because <laughs> um, I just want that role threat, man. Like when you have like wings and guards making up all five positions in a lineup, the defense can switch actions. And the way the Lakers with their playbook like to attack switching are with seals for post pins or lobs. Like they're trying to get inside position with the screener and then try to hit that guy. And that's much, much easier to do when that player's big. If it's AD, beautiful. If it's Gabriel, that works. Bamba, not quite as, you know, the athletic roller type of guy. If he's picking and popping, they're switching it. That doesn't, you know, it doesn't really matter. And he's not the post player to go beat up a mismatch. And they're sending help in the post anyway. So Bamba doesn't really solve this problem. But if the Lakers had, you know, a Dwight Howard, a JaVale McGee, like those guys able to just be in the lineup and then, you know, throw the ball to them with inside position on a roll. That's what I'd like to see with this group. So Gabriel is the closest you can get to that. And I would like to see some more of it with the group as is. They're small and it's it's tough to generate anything with any of your plays because you don't have that role guy. And because you don't, Memphis is switching everything and it just ends up being a lot of iso ball. And LeBron inverted ball screens, trying to attack that way. There were some empty side ball screens, you know, a ghost screen into an empty corner. We saw for Reeves, he got a three off of that. We saw some short roll stuff that was successful. It's just like there's only one kind of style of play they can run with that group. And I think just adding one roll man allows them to be a bit more dynamic offensively and just open up so much more of the playbook. Um, Is it worth so thinking about um, like someone like Schroeder using the, you know, handling the ball more in that lineup and having LeBron be the role man? I think that's a good idea. Yeah, that that would be good to see. We may still see switching, but I think LeBron is a smart enough and experienced enough, skilled enough role man and post player that he can then take that inside position and, and do smart things with it, whether it's catch and shoot or catch the defense collapses and he sprays it out to shooters. I, I w- that is a good idea, Tom. I would like to see LeBron more as a screener in those lineups because it's often him on ball or him just standing and spotting up and watching. And holding the ball and sizing a guy up and jab steps. And then it's like he's made, you know, to, to his credit, he was only one for seven on his threes, but he was seven for 11 on his twos. So he, mm-hmm. you know, might not have been dunking, but he was getting to the, the lane and making crazy finishes like he did over Jaron Jackson at the end there. So, you know, he was getting decent looks, you know, in that two-point range. Absolutely. And I'm glad you called out Jackson. Jackson's an elite rim protector and an elite shot blocker, but he does so as a help defender rotating to the rim as a secondary help defender. The Lakers ran action to get him switched onto LeBron with LeBron Rui screens or LeBron AD screens so that Jackson, rather than Tillman, who's... Tillman is a very good perimeter defending big man. He, you know, we see it on the film. It's not just that LeBron is washed and can't beat a person. Tillman's legit really good at this. He's been really good at this since Michigan State, probably before then as well. In the data, he's really good at this. Jaron Jackson Jr. is not. And so he's someone you can get by. And then when you get by him, what's the rim protection? Jackson is not nearly as good of a rim protector when he's behind you trying to chase you compared to when he's able to take one step over and and leap. And 
with him out of the play, then Tillman becomes that rim protector. And he is a big body. He's able to hold his ground. He's a strong on-ball defender. And he's he grades out very well as a post player. We talked about it pre-series. But as a help secondary rim protector, he's not anywhere near the same caliber of player as, as Jackson is. So just get, picking that matchup, get targeting Jackson, and they did it in overtime. They did it in the fourth quarter. To me, that's really, really a smart way to operate. So looking at the data for these two guys against rotation anchor bigs and mobile bigs, Jackson has F matchup difficulty in D plus perimeter isolation defense. You can go get that guy. You can go after him. Tillman, B perimeter isolation defense on B plus matchup difficulty. So pretty solid. Not, not elite, not the best, but pretty darn good. And then when you've got Jackson behind you, you're going to be even better. So just flipping the roles of those two. We've seen plenty of Tillman needing to defend LeBron in the perimeter. Get Jackson on him. I like that so much more. Because then even if LeBron does swing the ball to someone and then someone else attacks, Jackson's still out of position. He's still not standing by the rim. So I appreciated LA targeting Ja and targeting Jaron for similar but different reasons. And they had success against each. I was surprised, Tim, at the end. Uh, it was either the fourth or the over- overtime when the Lakers were trying to space Jackson out with AD in the corner. And I really don't think that's the most ideal way because he's going to crash down, not worried really about the AD three. And we saw AD brick uh, contested, but not terrible three in crunch time there. And it's, I don't think he played well. He missed a lot of bunnies. You know, he missed, he like made all the toughest shots he took, like shot clock running down, crazy, you know, catching and flip layup in transition. Um, mm-hmm. and missed with dead a shooter bunny. assisting from his butt. <laughs> yeah, like the weirdest plug you make that one, but I, I didn't think he was schemed for or involved enough there toward the end. Um, and I just don't really agree with that working if you're trying to get Jackson out of the play it it didn't I don't think because he almost got there yeah yeah there was one play right around when you were talking about I think it was a couple plays before the 80 corner bricked three where there was a LeBron iso on the right wing he drove baseline Jackson was guarding AD in the left corner he went to help as you know he will and then AD instead of cutting along the baseline he kind of he still cut towards the middle of the paint or he still cut towards the rim, but it was from like a couple steps towards this, towards a uh, half court. So he was able to catch in front of the rim instead of kind of under the rim or behind the backboard and was able to, I, I think he got fouled or he might've scored, um, got a bucket. If you're going to stick Vando or AD in that corner, they need to be cutting And how they cut and where they cut, I think, is important. Cutting in front of the rim instead of behind the rim, I think, matters. Or they need to be setting, like, a flare screen or something. And especially, like, a a baseline drive with a hammer flare on the opposite corner for a Darvin Ham team, the guy that the the play is named after. I think we we haven't seen that. We've only seen that a couple times this year. But not in the playoffs. I think that could be a way to, if you want to try to counter the Jackson baseline help off of a guy standing in the corner who's not a shooter, you know, stick Beasley at the wing or Reeves at the ring or wing or D'Lo at the wing. And then as Jackson leaves AD or Vando or whoever would set a screen for that wing player to, to slide down to the corner. Cause that's the easiest pass if you're driving baseline. So 
Uh, maybe a tweak there, but I'm with you. AD standing at the three-point line is not the way you want to use him as a scorer. It takes away his rebounding. If he's not actively cutting, he's in a bad spot. And then he's also deep against the baseline, so he's in a bad spot to get back in transition, which we saw a couple times. So, like, if he's going to stand in the corner, like, if he's not going to get the ball not going to cut, I'd rather have him at the three-point line because he can play some transition defense. But I don't want him at the three-point line. Like, keep him under the rim, get him involved, or cut him to the rim. And if he's not, he needs to be busting his butt, busting his butt back because transition will has and will continue to be a threat against this Memphis team. I mean, you'd think they would be able to just scheme against help because, you know, the defense is basically telling you, we don't want you to have this thing ever, right? So mm-hmm. we're going to do X, Y, Z, and it's a finite number of things they can do, right? And there are things you can have. I know it's short you know, notice these are, you know, quick turnarounds, you're scheduling new kind of ideas, maybe concepts you haven't totally worked on based on this one circumstance and players and should be able to knowingly have an advantage and attack it with execution. But, you know, I don't think their offense has been terrible. They've had bad stretches, but it's just, you know, they haven't really focused on really getting AD post touches at all in the last few games it's felt like yeah they've they've struggled with that i think help beaters are a way to get him involved just get him cutting to the middle of the paint or like and it kind of depends on on how memphis is playing but when he's off ball and the defense is loading up the paint or around the paint really is where he'd be more valuable cut him right to the middle of it all those plays we saw jared vanderbilt in what game two or game three i think it was game three cuts to the middle of the paint Catch the dump off, and then Jackson's there. AD's going to finish that right over. He's going to go through him. And those are plays, if LeBron's posting up or LeBron's isolating and the defense is walling up around the paint, AD's got to be that guy cutting cutting to the middle of the paint right in front of the rim because that's the best dump off option you're going to have. Um, or if they're in the middle of the paint, you know, setting those pin and flares. And that was uh, the one other adjustment I saw from LA in the third quarter with Vanderbilt is – he was setting pin and flare screens like constantly, uh, which was helpful because in the first quarter he was not. And it was, as we mentioned, very, very hurtful. So, yeah, getting AD more involved. They tried to do the wide pin down thing in the first half. Didn't work. They're sagging off of Vando. Ellie didn't try to go back to it. We didn't see. We, we have yet to see the like cross screen for the post up with the with the screen afterwards this series. There are a number of plays in the playbook that could get AD going that we haven't quite seen. They're trying to do the roles. They're trying to create empty side roles. When they did post up in this game, we saw Memphis continue to send help in LA be okay. Um, one play comes to mind in the first quarter. LeBron, or no, AD got the ball. Defense was around. They're at the elbows in the, the blocks. And so... D'Lo relocated. He was the passer. He relocated to the top of the key and then sprinted right down the middle of the paint. And the defense removed one of the help defenders to help to, to take the, to take that cut away. And that created a driving lane for AD. So he drove middle. He was going to get a bucket. And then Vando's guy r- rotated over and was able to stop him off of the opposite elbow because Vando was just hanging out at the opposite elbow, not doing anything. And so LA ran the right help beater, but then had to go through, you know, like a second wave of it. And it's just so hard to do. So any of the Lakers like telegraphed, we're trying to post up right now stuff was not working. 
pre-catch, Memphis did a really good job deterring passes. Post-catch, they sent help in a lot of different ways. And it was only really two plays come to mind where the Lakers did have success posting up. Both of those plays were like eight seconds on the clock, AD or LeBron. There was one play for each of them. They just happened to be under the rim. And then they just ducked in really hard and was able to get deep post position once LeBron got it. And I think he scored. I think AD got the ball and he was fouled. Um, Just, you know, not telegraphing it. Go be aggressive, get deep post position, catch and immediately attack has been an okay option. But again, to your point, AD's been a bit less involved from a play calling standpoint. And I, I kind of get why. Uh, it's like they're taking away the roles and they're giving up other stuff. Even when Memphis was in drop, they were tacking AD on roles. Like no matter what, they're sending rotations, they're sending out those shooters. They need, well, first there need to be shooters out there and then they need to take advantage. And I think I... I'm I'm willing to see a starting lineup change. I don't know about you, but I'm I think I'm there. I was going to ask you because you know you don't always make an adjustment that major when you're up three games to one. Um, sometimes you have to be precipitated to do that, or you know more engaged to do that. But I I I kind of agree. Kind of unless if they don't, I don't think they will for what it's worth. But I think I'm with you. Um, I'm guessing you would want to go with Rui. You could go a couple different ways. I think it's between Rui. It'll probably be Rui because Rui's been who they've been closing with. Uh, or Troy. In theory, is- or Troy, or could I interest you in some Dennis Schroeder? We did see this. No. no? Okay. We did see this for a little no, bit. So hear you. me out. This this would be, I think Rui's probably the best option, but here would be the thinking for all three. I'll have, I'll, all right. if, you, if you go with Dennis, I think Dennis is who, well, Dennis is who the team trusts on John ja Morant most or second most behind Vando. And I, I think he's been better than Vando on ball against Shaw. Dennis, you're absolutely, we'll talk about the defense a little bit, but hell of a job this series. And we saw it on display yesterday, navigating ball screens, like two, three, four in a row, just, sl- you know, jumping out in front of it, slithering through and then staying in front. He did such a good job. Um, and that really takes away a lot of Memphis's offense. So he did a heck of a job, but him at the point of attack, Reeves on Desmond Bain. He's been the top guy on Bain. D'Lo on Dylan Brooks. What are you going to do, Dylan? You're going to try to go cook D'Lo? Wait, go take 20 shots, Dylan Brooks. Go, you know, go go for it. Uh, and then LeBron on Jackson, AD on Tillman. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. I think that's a good lineup. Alternatively, you could go Troy Brown. And Brown, if, if I were to go that route, I would stick Reeves on Shaw, which we have not seen the team willing to do much. So I don't think this is going to be a, a, a route they go. But Reeves on Shaw, Brown on Bain, D'Lo again on Brooks, and then again you have Braun on Jackson, AD on Tillman. I think it's viable. I don't expect it to happen. LA hasn't kind of shown us that they're – like before we see a big change, like a starting lineup change, I think you're going to see a shift – and then it gets to a point where it's like, okay, now we change the starting lineup. We've seen that with the Rui minutes and with Rui taking over for Vando. Vando didn't come back into the game after his one stint in the, the second quarter. Um, See, that's the thing for me, though, Tim, is I feel like they're at the right answer already. You start Vando, you know, they haven't been going down like 20 points in these games in the first quarter, but 
you get the the second shift is the problem, right? They have been. It feels like, uh, and I don't know the numbers. I'm sure it's not great, but uh, well, actually, game three probably skews it all. Huh, honestly, it probably is like totally skewed based on that um, because of the sample size. But I think the answer of starting Vando and closing with Rui is probably like the right one right now. Until Vando, like really, you know, if they keep finding like a lack of scoring in the first quarter, you might got to give it three minutes instead of six, something like that. You know what I mean? I think I'm more willing to make the switch. I get what you, I hear what you're saying. But like by the end of the game, yes, we're in. But when we look at the four games, this series, the lineup that's playing the most by far by like 80 possessions or something like that is the starting lineup. And I guess my pitch would be if you get Rui into the starting group, he can kind of play normal starter minutes and that lineup, which has been substantially better offensively than with Vando in there, not a statistically significant sample size to say this will be this way forever in the future, but logically, schematically, tactically, yeah, it's going to do better and it has done better. And I have no question. I have no doubt in my mind it will do better. It's just a matter of okay, defensively, what do you do from there? How do you how do you match up? Um, and I think that that does become the the question: is do you stick Tilo on Jaw? Do you stick Reeves on Jaw? The other one would be on Bain, and then you could stick Braun or Rui on Brooks. The other one on Jackson, and then AD on Tillman. So defensively, I think is where you are less comfortable. But offensively, absolutely, I'm down for it. And then if you do that. Rather than Vanderbilt playing kind of starter shift minutes and then just being, you know, axed from the rotation halfway into the game, he can play more natural. Like, I just feel like Rui and Vando can play more natural shifts. And uh, if you get Vando in for Rui's minutes with, like, the no AD lineup, he can be paired with Beasley and be setting, you know, off-ball screens constantly. And just the two of them can be off on their island screening for each other constantly. And then maybe something's open. And if something's not open, it's because you're playing 3v3 while those four players on the other side of the court are doing their own thing. And I don't mind that. Because for a team that is so reliant on help defense, that removes – that just kind of breaks the chain of rotation. So that would be my pitch. But again, the, the issue becomes what do you do defensively? And then I've got one tricky option. When I don't, I don't know that Ellie would do this. Actually, they did do it, but it was because D'Lo fouled out. But going Dennis and Rui, you get Dennis on Jaw, good there. Reeves on Bain, I'm good there. You've got Braun on Brooks, Rui on Jackson, AD on Tillman. Defensively, that lines up great. And then offensively, you still have Reeves, Schroeder, and LeBron for ball handling and some playmaking. You've got Rui out there as a spacer, a post-up guy against mismatches, guy to fight on the boards, and then AD doing his thing. So Dennis and Rui, I mean, you just sub one non-shooter for another. But it's I, I see what you're doing. I, Dennis I for have Vando, some concerns mean. still. What's that? Uh, Den- Dennis and for Vando. Right. Oh, you. Right. So you'd start Dennis, D'Lo, and Austin. So I think that's the fourth option that I didn't talk about yet. Okay. Um, sorry, I'm just trying to figure. But, so you were saying? I thought, sorry, sorry. So you take D'Lo out for Dennis, right? Okay. And then you yeah, also yeah. take Vando out for Rui, right? So you take, you know, Dennis is kind of a non-shooter for D'Lo, who is a shooter. Rui's a better shooter than Rand than than Vando, 
So it's just mm-hmm. kind of putting a shooter in the, a better position, but you're still yeah. going to get like four Dennis corner threes. Yeah, I think that I think that could be fair. And then I think the other option I had four written down here. The other one would be to do what you referenced and play Dennis Reeves and Yulo together along with LeBron and AD and defensive. Oh, I, I think I mentioned that earlier. Uh, you get. Yeah, I did mention this earlier. I talked about this. So I think that's an option. You can go small with the three guard lineup. You could just up Rui in for Vando. You could go the Brown route, which I don't think they'll do, given how they've played him thus far this series. Or there may be a minutes where you have Dennis and Rui in with Vando and D'Lo out. Something to think about. Feels good to the have options. Like this, the starting lineup has stunk offensively, yeah. and they played so many minutes, <laughs> like so many minutes. So. It just seems like the easiest way to unmuck things up. Like if you go rewatch anybody out there, go rewatch the first like six minutes of the game. Every single play, what the Lakers are trying to do is disrupted by the fact that Memphis is deciding to leave Jared Vanderbilt alone. Every single play. And LA got away with it. And Vando hit shots that he normally doesn't hit. But if you could just have just a normal shooter out there, it would open things up so incredibly much. Um, in a world where Memphis says we want to put Brooks on the bench and start like John Conchar or Luke Kennard. And I don't think the Lakers would do this, but maybe you, st- you could stick Beasley in there for Vando. It's like the, the offensive ceiling goes up a ton with his spacing defensively. You know, who does he match up with? If it's Kennard, he's done fine on Kennard. If it's Conchar, Conchar's not a scorer. Um, so if you could sneak sneak him in, depending on what Memphis is doing, that could be an option. So things to think about. I'm sure everyone at home has has opinions as well, but I I'm just I've seen enough that I'm itching to get out ahead of the probably inevitable change. Like I can see the Lakers losing Game Five. Memphis is leaning super heavily into Vando's non-shooting and it being very disruptive. And rather than them saying, "All right, every game for the rest of the series, we're going to play half of basketball where we're you know." shooting ourselves in the foot they just they just make the change yeah no it's it would be good to see that foresight too um and to recognize you know have that uh that thought process you know it's all about the process of how you're kind of making your adjustments and when and when you're gonna based on process or results right so anyway tim let's take a quick break here and uh we'll get come back and talk a little bit more about the lakers defense Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, coming back from break here, Tim. Uh, the Lakers had a very up and down defensive game. Um, I feel like they had points in the third and fourth quarter where I felt like the Grizzlies could not be stopped and the Lakers did not have answers. And Ja was getting buckets to the rim. Um, but I think Ja ended up with only one point in the fourth quarter. I think he had five in overtime. But yeah, one point in the fourth quarter, it was Bain who got going there. Um, hitting some tough shots, honestly. But uh, I also saw the Grizzlies were one for 16 
or one for or two for 17, I think, from the corner three, which is wow. pretty incredible. That's not going to repeat itself, right? They had some good looks. Um, and one of those threes was the canard, like, last shot with, like, three seconds left. So they were affected, like, one for 16 um, mm-hmm. in, in, from the corner the whole game. So, Oof. but we saw Jaron Jackson um, is only five for 15. You know, Ja was eight for 24. It was really just banging 13 for 29, who was making some tough shots. But it did feel like the Grizzlies were uh, getting a lot better opportunities there in, in the second half. Tim, what did you see from the Lakers defense? Yeah, so LA stuck with their game plan. They continued to send aggressive help off of non-shooters to defend the rim. And as a result, we saw Memphis take threes. They took a bunch of threes. And for the fourth game in a row, they were taking a lot of threes with bad shooters. 60% of their threes were from D or F shot-making guys uh, compared to 31% for the Lakers. Four out of four games, it's looked like that. They've about like twice as many of their threes were taken by bad shooters. So yeah, they got some open threes. Yes, they did underperform, but not by as much as maybe they, you know, you you could potentially say they did just because of the caliber of the, the players taking those shots. But uh, against Jaw and just in general ball screens, we saw the team continue to play drop coverage, whether it was Bain or Jaw or Jones, Brooks, and they used the high drop against Jaw. They tried to go under when they could. They iced a little bit. And the Grizzlies were not very good as a ball screen efficiency team in the first half. In the second half, they somehow, I don't, this, this is bizarre to me because I think this is something they should have done from the first minute of the game. Out of the break in the third quarter, all of a sudden, they started running drop-beating concepts. And examples of drop-beating concepts are like the Lakers' double-drag Oklahoma set. If, if a dropping big is looking to defend the rim, he's out of position to defend an off-screen action where the, the roller is, is the screener in that downscreen. Memphis ran that. Um stack actions Spain it's the same thing stack Spain they ran that like five times in the third quarter and had great success with it and it works like immediately and those are drop beating concepts the idea of and this was the number one thing I thought Memphis should focus on going into this game offensively is how do we get AD away from the rim use his man as a screen setter for off-ball screens. Because one, you can tie up AD, get him away from the rim. And then two, you're creating more opportunities for Kennard, for Bain, two guys that on the season are among the top three-point shooters for the team from a frequency standpoint. But in this series, n- not as much. Um, when you look at Jones, Bain, and Kennard, those are the, their top three guys on the regular season. Kennard, per 100 possessions, averaged 11 three-points point attempts a game, Bain 10 and a half, uh, and Jones was pretty high up there as well. Like three of their top like four guys in attempts per 100 possessions when you kind of adjust for how many minutes they're playing. In this series, though, we've seen Jackson take more threes, Roddy take a bunch of threes, Jaw take a bunch of threes. Like Kennard is not taking as many threes as all of these really bad three-point shooters. And Using AD's man as a screen setter could have been a way to try to one draw AD away from the rim and then create extra scoring opportunities for these guys that you're struggling to get going. We finally saw them do it. They ran exit screens, they ran pin and they ran pin and flare screens. And altogether, it only ended up being 10 plays 
there were uh, 10 plays where they ran these concepts and they scored 10 points. So a point per possession on those. Every other ball screen they ran in this game, they averaged uh, or they scored 0.76 points per possession. So horrific offensive efficiency. The Lakers absolutely locking stuff down. But when they finally realized, oh, crap, we can attack what the Lakers are doing defensively, they actually scored well. And it could have been even worse. They were, of those 10 plays, like five of them, just from an execution standpoint, Memphis screwed up. They did the wrong things. Ja made the wrong read. John set, ja set a crappy screen or Brooks set a crappy screen on one play. Like it could have been so much worse, but it shows me for the first time also these signs of life. It took three and a half games. It shouldn't have. I don't know how you don't go into this game knowing this, or I don't know how you have this sudden realization at halftime. Um, to me, that's odd. But now that they have figured it out and they use that for most of the rest of the game, they actually went away from it in overtime, which was silly. And they didn't use it as much in the fourth quarter. But if they go into game five using this stuff, they're going to be so much better, so much more effective as a ball screen offense for a team that scored 0.83 points per possession in game one, 0.97 in game two, where they got Bane ball screens. The Lakers were hedging and they were dicing it up. LA fixed that. 0.61 points per possession in game three in ball screens. And then 0.82 in this last game. Horrific. Really bad stuff. The worst pick and roll offense of any team in the playoffs. If they lean into these concepts again and attack drop and try to draw AD away from the rim, they're going to have success. And we saw them have success from an efficiency standpoint. It could have been better. And then also in terms of taking AD away from the rim, this was their best game of the series. Uh, When we look at AD's rim protection numbers, he was able to contest 73% of the shots at the rim. He was on court four in game one. Everywhere. He was everywhere. Game two, when the Lakers messed up and put him on Jackson and let Jackson stand at the three-point line. That went down to 29%. LA fixed that in game. Second half, it was much better. Last game, 52%. And then in this game, 27%. Really low number. He only contested eight shots at the rim the whole game. Still held opponents to 24% shooting below expectations when they tried him. But 27% is a really low number for AD. That is not going to cut it. The Lakers defense is not good when AD is not able to defend the rim. And when we look at just Memphis's frequency of shots at the rim in general, it's gone from 16% of game one up to 25%, up to 33%. Now it's up to 37%. So they are trending very much in the right direction in terms of creating opportunities at the rim. They finally figured out how to attack the Lakers drop coverage. They finally figured out how to get AD away from the rim. They've done it too late. They're going to lose the series, but... These next couple of games are going to be hard and the Lakers may need to adjust because they finally figured these things out. We, we might need to see the Lakers go to plan B and be switching and loading up the paint, which potentially may take AD away from the rim as well. Um, LA, I thought, did a good job defending the stack action like the fourth or fifth time it was run against them. So there are things they can do to try to muck these up. I think if you're LA, you do what you can to keep AD at the rim and stay in drop. And then just force Memphis to be really good from a play calling standpoint. Because we saw in this game, third quarter, great. Fourth quarter, iffy. Overtime, didn't use any of that shit at all. So just because they have the answers doesn't mean they're going to use them enough that it matters. And I would, for game five, dare them to call a great game from a play calling standpoint. And if they don't, they're going to lose. But if they do, then you need to be ready to adjust. So is you think their first adjustment to, to go to switching um, or do you think they would kind of do more of the catch hedge kind of, you know, 
like more aggressive blitzing, which I, I wouldn't hate. And also for what's worth, if you're going to play like this, I think Vando is a little bit too slow footed laterally. Um, he's been giving up some downhill, you know, in possessions for jaw and he's getting screened. Uh, unlike Dennis, to your point, I think Troy is even a better option uh, just to throw maybe a different look after four games. Yeah, I think you could do a couple different things. Um, better screen navigation on jaw, I think, is important because if you don't have to send help at all and you could stay in front, none of this works. So Schroeder, maybe Reeves, Brown could potentially be interesting. Um, that would be a tweak. And we've already seen for the first game all series, Dennis was jaw's primary defender over the course of the game. It had been Vando. Now, now it was it was Dennis. So I, I like that. That's what I called for pre-series. I'm glad we were able to see it. Then from there, I think you look at how do we defend specific concepts they're running, like the exit screen stuff. As long as you know it's coming, you can, and we've seen Memphis do this against the Lakers exit screens. You can try to ignore the guy setting the screen. AD can still defend the rim. And then the guy defending the shooter just needs to be absolutely on his game in terms of locking and trailing or try to go around the screen it's exit screens are better as a surprise than a predictable thing. So I would try to defend it one V two because Tillman's not a spacer. He's not a shooter. And if he catches at the short corner, I'm not all that worried about that. So see if you can just have whoever that guy is D or Reeves or whoever, just stay on Bane, stay on Kennard. Cause if you can do that, that's fine. Um, the stack action, if you can do kind of like a three man switch situation, or what we saw the Lakers initially do was instead of AD being in more of a high drop and allowing himself to be back screen, he was in a super, super, super deep drop so that he couldn't be back screened. And that's going to allow the running start for jaw. And it's going to allow more uncontested mid-range jumpers and potentially floaters. But I would still rather do that than hedge. Um, if none of those smaller tweaks are working, I think switching is what I would do next. I like blitzing over just hedging. I think if you're going to put two on the ball, you want to be as disruptive as possible with it. Especially um, with a guy put, who's got a messed up hand, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Put more ball pressure on him. Make it, you know, swipe at the ball. Like if you can be more disruptive, that's good. I think blitzing predictably is a bad strategy in general. And we've seen Memphis this season. I talked about this pre-series when they faced it a lot in, a sing in single games. They crushed it because they know it's coming. But if you're mixing it in every now and then, along with switching, I think that could be an effective next step. Um, and then if you are switching, then it'll be about how do we do, you know, off ball switches or double and then scram if somebody out of there, do what you can do to keep AD around the rim. What I don't want to see is the Lakers say, we're going to switch. And then Memphis just run a play where they get AD switched on to Bain or somebody and then just stick them in the corner and then jaw tries to go to work and AD can't help. That's what I'm worried about with the switching. So you've got options. It's not like there's only one path forward. I think hedging is a bad path forward. They're, they're too good at it. They've got the shooters. They've got the short roll playmaking. I'm worried. I think Jock can even, you know, split hedges. Like that to me is probably the worst option. But switching with the right tactics, drop, you can try to finagle your way to stay into it. Um, and trapping, mixing that in. So... It's good that there are options. It's not like we're at the end of the the, the tactics battle and somebody's checkmated. All right, Tim, I got a layup question for you. <laughs> How do you stop 
someone who just drives as hard as they possibly can to the basket um regardless of um anyone's well-being how do you stop that i would take a charge <laughs> that's right <laughs> or or there were places where the lakers just like got out of the way and jaw was just like flailing there were places he would jump and then turn in air as if he was anticipating contact and was trying to protect himself, but then didn't hit anybody and then just had to like throw shit up last moment. And it like ended up flying out of bounds, crashing and almost hurting himself. And it was just a miss, no contact, no foul. And like running in transition, like insane. Did you see the, the tweet I put up? Asking oh, people yeah. for their oh, favorite, yeah. favorite gift to describe, to, to, to illustrate Jaws approach attacking the rib, like just the funniest stuff, some really good stuff in there. Go check that out. Um, yeah, man, he's going to hurt himself and others. It's I, he already has. <laughs> he actually already has. Um, yeah, no, it's it's just because the you know, this is part of their game plan. They like getting jaw downhill. Right. But and this is where I want to, like, choose my words wisely, because I'm not trying to say what that, that that's not valuable. But there's only, there is a time where you go too fast. Right. You go fast mm-hmm. enough for yourself and you go too fast for the rest of the team. Or you go too fast for the defender to even be out of position. Like the the next guy's guarding you and he's already in front of you. And it's, Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's like you go so fast, you can't make decisions to adjust your game. And so when you go that speed constantly, I I guess it's just like a pitcher who only throws a hundred, right? I, I don't know. That's you've got to have some kind of a change up, right? To be like a very, very high end professional. Yeah. Learn how to jump stop. <laughs> like learn a Euro step. Like there are other things he could do. He's outrunning his teammates in transition and turning a three on one or two on one into a one on one. And then absolutely is not looking to dump the ball off. And it's much easier to defend a one on one than a two on one. Like there are plays I could just pull a bunch of screenshots of. This could have been two easy points. This could have been two easy points. This could have been two easy points. If he just slows down a little bit, lets his teammate catch up and reads the floor, reads the play. The defense is committing to me. It's like, I mean, it's 3v2, 2v1 drills at every basketball practice at every middle school, every high school. Like it's, it's fundamental and he's going too fast and he's not allowing the numbers to be there. And he's putting himself and others in dangerous situations and he's making dumb decisions, frankly. He's trying to, he's playing almost as if he's trying to make a highlight every play more than he's trying to make the winning play every play. Like, get the two points, just dump the ball off. There was play Tillman was open, Jackson was open. Like, yeah. Just get the two points. You don't need to try it, to dunk on everybody and jump from like the free throw line to do so. It's like he thinks that his athleticism is just a skeleton key that's going to unlock every single problem in front of him. It's just like brute force and speed. And it's it's the dry. It's the how do I want to phrase this? It's like the big athleticism version of unethical basketball. Like he's so used to in the regular season being able to just launch and then he gets a foul called and he throws junk up at the rim. That no, people make games, business decisions in January and, and, you know, November. They're not either. Go for it, dude. Like, shit. Yeah. Either they're getting out of the way and it's easy or they're fouling you and you're getting free throws. With the increased physicality of the playoffs and the ref's willingness to, like, like let guys, you know, make more contact, 
you're not getting all of those easy calls. And because he's still throwing junk up when he's getting hit, it's not going all that well. Like Reeves, you know, Reeves versus SGA or Trey Young or Harden, when he's drawing mid-range fouls, he's getting like legitimate shots up and hitting a lot of them. So when in the playoffs, a foul is not called, he's still taking real shots and giving himself a chance to score. We did see one where he threw a shot up, he got fouled. It didn't, it wasn't close to going in. He involved it. Not a good, you know, last game example, but for the most part, Reeves has been really strong with that. So there's there's a higher floor to it, even if the foul isn't called. With Jaw, if the foul's not called, it's a bad miss on so many of these layup attempts or dunk attempts. So that's a five that's, on four, right? Yep, exactly. Yeah, there's so many plays. He any job missed layup or dunk equals a five v four the other way because he ends up flying out of the play. The same way that we've seen like LeBron or AD or Russ at times early in the season, them go up, them miss, them be on the floor, and then the other team gets a 5v4. They're complaining to the ref about a foul call, and it's a, a 5v4 or a 5v3 or something. All right, Tim, I have another question, and I don't know what the answer is. What do we do with D'Angelo Russell? Because he was really bad on defense last night, and... It, they were trying to get him involved, rescreening, you know, again, I described it at the, the, the top, but kind of trying to scram him out of there. And he is just not, he's not there. He's not the effort. He falls asleep on a guy just kind of like relocating, you know, he thinks that the ball's not going there and it's, it's always just going right over the top of him. It's a little lazy closeout. Um, I don't know. If he's going to be on the court, they got to find some other way because I do think he, you know, made them vulnerable um, last night. Yeah, that that's a concern. As long as you're able to keep 80 at the rim, you're able to overcome some of these concerns. When that's not the case, it it becomes more difficult. I think it's the accountability. It's making him aware. It's coaching him up to it in the middle of the game, having an assistant coach that's like on his ass about, are you boxing out? Are you sticking with your guy? Things like that. When we look at his primary matchups, he was on Dylan Brooks most often. And then he had a pretty equal split between Bain, Morant, and David Roddy. A couple of those guys, I'm not all that worried about as scores. And it's more like, it's it's less like, oh, you, you got beat by a better player. It's more like, what the hell, man? Like, how did you let that happen? You got to be more awake than that. And that's harder to support tactically. Having a guy who doesn't rotate well, who doesn't play good shell positional defense, that can be more difficult. But I think we've like over the course of the year, like he's, he's been a pretty good rotator. He's a good communicator. So I, I trust that he can do better. Um, I don't know. I have faith. Maybe I need to rewatch again and, and, and spot more of those problems, but like who specifically, or what, what specific things were you seeing from him that have you concerned? It's frankly, it's the effort on um, moments where he isn't directly on ball and he's he's a snaps too slow to react that the ball is incoming or that there's a screen incoming and then he's just behind. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's it's I think it's slight awareness and slight communication, maybe with the guys not you know, yelling it out or that's how he likes it. I know he was pretty vocal in Minnesota with that stuff, at least for a while. Um, he had the reputation of being a better, you know, communicator on defense, despite not being a, you know, defensive, you know, impact player. 
Yeah, communication matters a lot. If you're the guy who's being screened, the communication needs to be from the screener's man. Um, so that that's maybe there's opportunity there. I don't know who that. Maybe it was AD. Maybe it was Rui. I don't know. Um, there's potentially opportunity there, but I, I would hope the team can identify. Hey, this is a problem. We need to address this. Here's what we're going to do, and just make him aware. I think awareness and accountability is is a way to fix that because it's not a skill deficit. It's not an athleticism def- deficit. It's just it's more of an attention thing. A You're not going to dramatically right? improve technique in a day, but it's yeah, it's more attention focus and discipline and communication sets him up. It gives him that extra second to be ready for it. So it's yeah. it's more than just him. It'll be him plus his teammates communicating. And maybe having a conversation about not fouling all the time, all the time, and maybe you know explaining the new transition take foul rules um, would help. But I I appreciated his attitude. You know I I am glad to have him again. I I thought uh, we were killing him. I was killing him in the, the short time I was on playback the other night. But I, I did think watching it again, he made bigger plays than I kind of realized. Um, yeah, so so dramatic. Yeah. He he hit some clutch shots. He made some mistakes on both ends of the court, but he was helpful. It's good to have him out there. If he's just out altogether, it becomes a problem over 48 minutes. So you need him in there. You need him playing. If it becomes a problem where he, he needs to sit, you stick Dennis in there and then and then you can make some interesting things happen defensively with your lineups. Um, but I feel good, Tom. Up 3-1. Yeah, odds so are in the Lakers' favor. What's the model say? What's, uh, do you have that kind of projection? I don't know what the line is. Uh, you know, any of Yeah, that. so I've got it pulled up in front of me. And we've run this model. So it's the same methodology with six different metrics in their player values. The LeBron version gives the Lakers an 83% chance to win the series, a 32% chance to win in five, a 43% chance to win in six, an 8% chance to win in seven, and then Memphis with a 17% chance to win in seven. Um, So that 83% is on the lower end, I think, of these six. Like Darko has it at 85, Drip has it at 88, EPM has it at 87. In the mid to low 80s, I think makes sense to me. Like Memphis needs to win three in a row. Two of them aren't home. They're better home. They're a really good home team. They're what they were the best home team, second best home team on the season. So with Jaw, you know, they were missing Jaw for for a game. Uh with Jaw, he's probably continuing to recover and be better. AD's now got something working against him. Memphis's offense is finally figuring things out. Like I'm not there there have been times in the past where the Lakers were up, you know ready to clinch and I feel fantastic. There's no chance they're going to lose. Yeah, th- there can be a chance they lose the series. They just need to take care of business. They need to make some adjustments. They need to play well. 80s played horrifically. Delos had a lot of poor shooting games. Uh, you worry about going on the road, but yeah, mid-80% mid chance is, I guess, where I'm feeling. Uh, I know the Lakers are, fa- or they're not favored, I should say. Memphis is favored for tomorrow's game. Uh, currently by four and a half, it looks like, at least wherever I'm looking. And to me, that makes sense. I would expect Memphis to be favored at home. Lakers have a chance to win, but I think my prediction at this point, and so far it's been kind of on schedule, I guess, is Lakers in six, I think, is the most likely outcome from my my eyes. But Lakers in five is certainly possible as well and would be the preferred route. 
Yeah, it's going to be tough. You know, 48 hour turnaround. Got to go all the way out to Memphis um, after playing an overtime game against a younger team, you know, younger, uh, younger core. Uh, they're not as deep. So, you know, they're banged up too. They got a, they got some injuries with jaw. It's, you know, it's why we like the, the game, man. They got to play the games. You're up 3-1. You feel great. Close it out. Get some days off. Let's uh, bring that Lakers in five energy to the playback stream on Wednesday night, Tim. Oh, yeah. Make sure you see us there. It's playback.tv slash Lakers watch party. We are calling the game live. It's you're watching the Lakers game with us as your announcers. And we still, you know, there's still the audio for the the normal stream. So you can still get the crowd. You can still have the announcers there as well. But listening to us break it down as it's happening. If you like the pods, it's the same kind of stuff. But during the game, plus also also having a bunch of fun and trash talking and celebrating and complaining uh, about the refs, you know, having panic attacks collectively. Yeah, it's it's a safe (laughs) place. Yep, there was a moment where in the third quarter, I was like, uh-oh, Memphis figured out how to attack drop coverage, and then like three or four plays in a row, they did it. I was like, oh, that's a good action. Oh, that's a good action. This is smart. Like, he's in trouble. Um, and and somebody was like, I got to mute Tim. He's he's getting to, he's telling me the truth. Uh, I don't want to hear that. I need I need more Lakers vibes. Uh, but LA figured it out. They ended up winning. But um, yeah, if what, what I want to prevent is someone watching the game and then be like, well, how we won? How do we do that? Or we lost? Like, yes. what happened? No, we'll, we'll yes. tell you what happened. In the moment. We'll exactly what happened. In the moment. And so join us there. It's a bunch of fun. It's free. You just need to log into your TV subscription or your, your Hulu Live or your League Pass or whatever assortment of those. Um, if you don't have one of those, that's okay. You can still listen to the audio. And a lot of people have been telling me like, hey, I watch on my big screen TV. I got my 75-inch my TV or whatever. Watch it on that on mute. And then I've got you guys on my laptop or on my phone right next to me. And I just pause and sync the two up. And that's how I watch the game. So I get, you know, the big screen, but with with that uh, that audio. So that is also a good route. That works for us as well. Definitely go check that out. Um, it helps us out financially. So check that out. Give us a chance if you haven't already. It's, it's a bunch of fun, cool community. And the stream chat is synced up and the stream itself is synced up. So you're reacting at the same time to the same things. You might go to other playback streams where, you know, last play of the game and it gets spoiled because people in the chat are like, woohoo, or, or like, oh, crap. We don't do that. We had a ba- I banned a person last night in the first quarter, second quarter, because um, they were spoiling things or one guy was going off the rails. We keep an eye on that and we make sure that it's everybody enjoying the same game at the same time. It's a bunch of fun. So check that out. And then also the Discord is a place to be to continue the conversation. We've got extra content in there with the bonus uh, podcasts and X's and O's sessions, about 20 hours of recorded content. If you are like, I like the stuff. Tim keeps saying pin and flare screen. I don't know what that means. Uh, or like, what, what are you talking about? What the hell is a double gap and how do you attack it? Those sessions are recorded videos you can watch where it's me with like a diagram and I'm drawing plays up or I've, I've got my like my my pen and I'm like, you know, drawing stuff up, erasing and be like, this is how you create a gap. And here's what this looks like. Great content. Go check it out. You can get that 20 hours of stuff for 10 bucks. And then just, you know, if you consume it, all, just cancel your subscription. It's 10 bucks a month. So you get that bonus channels, all that good stuff. Want to shout out our friends of the podcast, TJ, TJ Timotaji, Zach Harris, Q Daddio, iPod Shuffle, Miguel, T Shuttleworth, 
Omar, Roy, Abdulrahman, Keneal Mason, Doppel, and Romario, all for living the high left with us in the owner's box, as well as to that courtside crew that gets the X's and O's sessions, the lower bowl crew that gets the bonus pods, um, and everybody above the bonus, everyone above the lower bowl also gets the bonus pods, and everyone else that's in the Discord. It's a bunch of fun, great place to be. My favorite places to be for the game are playback stream or Discord or then Twitter. Um, it's it's more fun hanging out with fellow Lakers fans and, and celebrating together and not needing to worry about like a random Suns fan trying to dunk on you for, for having a good time or asking a question or whatever. So get in there, check us out. And, uh, you know, we can't promise we'll, we'll make the Lakers win or that the game is going to be fantastic or it won't be stressful, but I promise you we're going to make it a little bit better. Yeah, it's a fun time. Get in there. But uh, yeah, till, uh, till we're on Friday night, we'll talk to y'all next time. Take care.